On November 10th of this year, a statue of Christopher Columbus was taken down in Los Angeles's Grant Park. City officials and members of LA's Native American Indian Commission were present to watch. Hundreds gathered to witness the takedown. Chrissy Castro, vice chair of the commission, was there. After decades of demonstration and protest and dialogue, it was very emotional. Uh, When the statue finally came down, we had singers, folks were clapping and yelling, and it was just a sense of release of finally being heard. On this episode of Monument Lab, Chrissy Castro shares insights behind the takedown, which was not an isolated event, but a larger part of a decades-long struggle for advocacy and representation among LA's diverse indigenous communities. Last year, Castro was one of the leaders behind the city's official change from recognizing Columbus Day to its new title, Indigenous Peoples Day. We speak with Chrissy Castro about her history as an organizer, her work with the city, and the next steps that may follow from this takedown. This is Monument Lab. Welcome to Monument Lab, a public art and history podcast. Each episode, we'll be talking to artists, activists, and historians about the monuments we've inherited from the past and the people and movements who are critically engaging them today. These are the people building the next generation of monuments through stories of social justice and solidarity. You can read more at monumentlab.com. Chrissy Castro, thank you for joining the Monument Lab podcast today. Thank you. On November 10th, a statue of Christopher Columbus was removed from Los Angeles's Grand Park. Representatives from the city of Los Angeles, in tandem with LA's City County Native American Indian Commission, were on hand and were involved in the removal. Can you describe the day from your view? So that day was one that I will always hold in my memory um, as far as the uh, at-large Indigenous community in L.A. coming together and claiming a small victory, a much-needed victory, after decades of demonstration and protest and dialogue. It was very emotional uh, when the statue finally came down We had singers, folks were clapping and yelling, and it was just a sense of release of finally being heard. And we know that there's a lot more work to do, but it was an important step um, towards really telling the true history um, of the place that we now call Los Angeles. You mentioned that the struggle has lasted decades. How did it begin, and how has it evolved over time? Well, the statue was gifted to the county of Los Angeles in 1973 by the Sons of Italy. And at that time, there was no indigenous consultation as far as putting that statue in the park. And so we really trace back this story 
1973. Uh, you know, 1973 was a time where uh, there was a lot of movement. Uh, you know, we had the American Indian movement going strong at that time. And um, there was definitely opportunity to engage the Native community locally, but we were not engaged. We have oral history um, back uh, since the 70s. Uh, we have folks that were part of this struggle that have testified that were active in the 90s. And ever since then, every decade, there was a new generation protesting um, Columbus Day, uh, as well as the Columbus statue. Um, on the day of the removal, I had community members come up to me and tell me stories about how when they were babies on their mother's backs, and these are 30 and 40 year olds, um, that they, you know, were basically protesting the statue since they were children and how meaningful it was uh, for them to actually be there to witness the statue coming down. And so we, as the Los Angeles City County Native American Indian Commission, us as a community, we really think it's important for us to tell the story as a collective community story that, um, you know, every action, uh, every letter, every phone call, you know, every, every, you know, every effort to to remove the statue and tell the true history of our people um, helped to contribute to this. So it wasn't about an individual actor. It was really about a collective will. It's amazing to hear of that long arc. People who push against the idea that problematic monuments should be taken down often claim that history should not be erased. But in this case and so many others, it's mind-boggling to hear that a statue to a figure from centuries ago went up in 1973. In your work, have you had to confront this idea that the statue has always been there or always belongs there? I have to say that the statue removal, um, the most recent process that we've been engaged in was about a year-long process. And it came off the heels of us winning Indigenous Peoples Day and the fact that we replaced Columbus Day with Indigenous Peoples Day. And that campaign, again, was decades in the making. And the most recent leg of that was a two-year campaign. And in that campaign, we stressed the reasons why Columbus should not be lifted up as a heroic figure. Our community came out um, in the hundreds to testify at various committee meetings at various meetings brokered with the Italian community um, to really share what this figure means to the intergenerational trauma that our community still suffers today. And we heard stories, for example, of mothers that came forward, this one in particular story of a young boy who had a long, beautiful braid, and he went to his school on a day where they taught about Columbus and how wonderful Columbus was and that fact that he was an explorer and what he brought. And whatever was said in that class, we don't know. But we do know that the parent was called because the young boy went under his desk, he cut off his braid, and he, would, he didn't want to come out. And he basically told his mom when they got home to talk about what happened that he didn't want to be Indian anymore. And so a lot of people talk about Indigenous Peoples Day, you know, this whole 
movement towards telling the true history, you know, locating Columbus where he should be located and say that this is not really the most important issue, that there's two sides of this story that we need to look at and we need to tell the accurate you know, story from both perspectives. And what we're saying is that no matter what you think about the situation, that, you know, lifting up Columbus is harmful to children. And, you know, our communities suffer amongst the highest rates of going down the list of socioeconomic conditions. And um, among them, one of the most uh, troubling for us as a community and, and something that we are really fighting against is the high rates of suicide of our young people. And the American Psychological Association has basically come out to say that harmful, you know, race-based mascots, um, that the dehumanizing symbols and holidays uh, contribute to the negative self-image of our young children. And that is directly uh, linked to feelings of self-worth and of our young people not feeling like they're valuable in this society. And so we definitely connect our health outcomes and our ability to thrive in our communities, our children's ability to prosper and to live a life of dignity. We connect that with these um, historical monuments and holidays. I'll just say for myself, that's why I am so passionate about this. With regard to your question about, you know, are there arguments that people have around, we have to maintain this historical peace. Because we did so much work with the Indigenous Peoples Day land community, where they left rooms that we were with them in saying, you know what, I'm really sorry. I didn't know Columbus meant this to you. Uh, we are here to celebrate our culture as Italian Americans, and we don't want to support this figure that has this meaning in your community. And so we didn't get as much pushback on the statue removal that I would have anticipated um, because I think we already challenged the narrative in a lot of ways. Um, but I will say for those few voices, um, because it definitely was not a strong opposition to the statue removal. If anything, I feel like the majority of Angelinos were, um, you know, on the side of the removal. When we look at things like the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation, they've put out a policy statement on controversial commemorative works. And um, to anybody that would argue that this is a historic statue and, you know, we should be, uh, you know, leaving that up as a piece of history, as I shared, this statue went up in 1973. And so it's actually not a historical artwork. Um, one of the points around this policy statement talks about how you need to um, address whether the item is actually historically significant. So is it recasting history or was it actual part of history? And I think given the relative newness of the statue, we can all agree it's, it's recasting history and it's actually not a historical monument. I'm curious to hear more about how these testimonies and periods of public discussion influenced this process and if you knew going into it, if it could have that kind of effect. As we invited the community to share their views on changing uh, Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day, uh, you know, I think all of us in the community in one way or another felt in a way I want to say re-traumatized or, you know, are getting in touch with the trauma you know, I'll say for myself, talking about genocide, mass genocide, 
uh, you know, reading the diary entries of Columbus and his crew. I don't need to say these things. Let me let me read to you what they said about themselves. Um, in thinking about you know the atrocities that happened, and the ways that Columbus and his crew described the indigenous peoples whom they first encountered. So, you know, for example, I'll just read one statement. Um, they write, "Endless testimonies prove the mild and pacific temperament of the natives." But our work was to exasperate, ravage, kill, mangle, and destroy, right? So that tells you what their motivations were. And then, you know, they're writing about the actual Lucayans, Tainos, and Arawaks. And they write, they are the best people in the world and above all the gentlest, without knowledge of what is evil, nor do they murder or steal. They love their neighbors as themselves, and they have the sweetest talk in the world, always laughing. And so to re-embody the experience of indigenous peoples who, by the settlers' own, you know, words of saying how they lived and how they were treated and welcomed and the response was around murder and enslavement and rape and torture, us speaking those things as a community, you know, I'll say for myself as I witness other people and myself it was a lot of emotional trauma. And at the same time, I think it was necessary. It was necessary for policymakers in this case, you know, the city of Los Angeles, um, we had the most engagement with around um, changing Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day. But it was a very much um, a somatic experience. There was one day where I was sitting in the city council chambers and, um, you know, there was At first, when we started, there was a big Italian opposition. And as they heard us talking and as we had meetings with each other, their numbers really dwindled. Um, And so at the end, there were only, I would say, a handful, like, you know, three to five people that would continuously come to offer opposition. And we had hundreds behind us. And I heard this woman who was front and center with the opposition, and she kept talking about how Columbus was a discoverer, that we should not judge him by all of his actions, that we have to put him in the context of what was acceptable at the time, and that he was responsible for the, you know, um, exchange of goods and the exchange of people. And I kept hearing these talking points over and over at all the hearings. And, um, and I'm sure she heard us as well about the effect and impact on on us then and now as a people. And I just started to shake in my body and I was, it wasn't cold. I wasn't afraid. And I just had this physical reaction to what I was hearing. And I really believe that was touching that intergenerational trauma that, that we all carry because of all of these genocidal policies that were meant to destroy, destroy our culture, destroy our children, destroy our families and um, and at the same time, I felt like in order for the city council and other decision makers to understand why this was so important, that those testimonies were really necessary. Because this is not just something that's an academic exercise. This is not something that's just, you know, a symbolic gesture. This is something that actually has real meaning for us. And I knew that, you know, our storytelling and our sharing that that trauma and that impact was really necessary to shift people.
as an organizer, how do you balance that real emotional trauma with the vision to share stories and to push forward in the work that you're doing? You know, I don't want to speak for the whole community. We're very diverse people. But from my personal perspective, I think others would share this is that we have a responsibility. Although it could be painful, um, there was a real opportunity here to change the narrative, to change how people think about um, how this country was discovered or not, how this country was founded. If you look at any normal textbook, you will not get the indigenous perspective. You will not get the um, fact that, you know, we are now on anywhere you're at in the Americas, you're on indigenous land and that the land has a history that far exceeds um, the history of the United States. And history doesn't start from that premise. It's, it starts from the premise of European settler colonialism. And so we are really pushing back against that narrative. And so, yes, these issues are difficult, but we also see the real opportunity to shift the at-large consciousness you know, I'll say the the day after we won, city council voted to replace Columbus Day with Indigenous Peoples Day in August of 2017. And um, in October of 2017, even though the first official uh, holiday wasn't celebrated until 2018, the LA County Public Library um, posted, you know, on all over their social media and all, you know, in their library uh, posters, we are going to be closed for Indigenous Peoples Day this year. <laughs> and um, that meant so much to me because in, for people who are not involved in movement or who just are, majority of people don't have any kind of sense of American Indian history or struggle, that that notion of we're closed for Indigenous Peoples Day, that will I think invite people to ask like, Oh, what is this about? You know, it will reach people that we aren't able to normally reach. Um, you know, I had friends writing to me saying my children's school sent a letter home saying we are now closed for indigenous people's day. So it just feels like that's a testimony to how important it is. And the fact that we are willing to share our stories to have that larger uh, impact that we want to have. Los Angeles is home to the largest concentration of indigenous communities in the country. City council person Mitch O'Farrell, who is Native American, is part of the Wyandotte Nation. How did these factors shape the commission's relationship with the city? So I do want to say that Los Angeles County is home to the largest concentration of urban indigenous peoples in the whole country. Uh, the local um, first peoples, the original peoples of Los Angeles are Tongva, Tatavia, and Chumash nations. And the county is also home to hundreds of other tribes that were relocated to Los Angeles as part of the Federal Relocation Act, which sought to remove indigenous peoples from their traditional homelands and uh, basically assimilate them into mainstream American life. And so today, because of relocation, more than 70% of Native peoples in uh, what is now the United States uh, call a city home and don't live on their um, reservations or traditional lands. And 
Furthermore, there are dozens of indigenous tribes from Mexico, Central and South America. There are indigenous peoples here from Aotearoa, which we now know as New Zealand, from Hawaii, from Samoa. Um, and as we saw with this Columbus Sasha removal, that we have uh, Taino indigenous peoples that now call Los Angeles home. So uh, the fact that LA has such a strong indigenous community uh, was a huge factor in us being able to win and to persuade. And I will say for myself, it was the first time in my life anyways that I saw so much cross-unity between those indigenous communities. And it's a really beautiful thing to see. And we don't want to stop here, right? So people sometimes criticize to say that, you know, we should be worried about climate change and housing and homelessness and all educational equity. And we say, yes, we're working on all of those things too, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, um, you know, with this... Uh, movement that's happening, not only in LA, but, you know, we are part of a movement that's happening all across the country around standing against uh, resource exploitation, around missing and murdered Indigenous women, around Indigenous People's Day, you know, a lot of organizing in cities going um, on, you know, around the country around that, so that we are wanting to position ourselves and to continue, continue to build that unity so that we can make change on all of those other issues that are impacting our community. How did you begin your work as an organizer? I was born and raised in L.A. My grandparents came to L.A. from Wendell Rock in 1952. Um, they weren't part of the relocation program, but they were part of the wave to come during relocation. And so I'm third generation to live in Los Angeles. And um, our family was connected to the Native community in L.A. until I was about 10 or 11. And then for whatever reasons, we really started to become more isolated as a family. Um, we had other Navajo families that we were connected to, but we didn't participate in big community events. And it wasn't until I was in my 20s, uh, I went to grad school at UCLA for American Indian Studies. And I come to realize that the largest Indian center was about a mile away from where I grew up. And I had no idea. And as I started to go through the program and learning about the federal relocation program and the whole host of policies um, meant to assimilate us, I realized that our isolation wasn't by accident. It was by design. I just got very uh, passionate about wanting to make sure that our community was connected and not socially isolated and that we didn't have to go to graduate school to learn about the whole history of federal Indian policy um, and that I really um, wanted to reach young people in middle school and high school to connect uh, and to learn about our history and more importantly, to, um, to come together to see what was possible. And so I started out as a, um, as a youth organizer uh, in the community. And then uh, after, you know, doing some work in youth organizing in LA, the aunties and grandmas and elders came to me to say, okay, this is great what you're doing with the youth, but 
what about the Indian Child Welfare Act? And what about our economic development? And, you know, so I started to just build relationships in the community in um, addressing other issues. And then that led me to joining the Los Angeles City County Indian Commission, which I think I've been on for more than 10 years. You know, we're still working on trying to figure out, you know, how to connect to all those other Native families that are still currently isolated. Uh, We have about 200,000 Native Americans and Alaska Natives that live in the county of Los Angeles. And we know that the majority of those are actually not connected um, to, you know, our work, to the social service infrastructure. And so it's still a big question that we're, we're trying to solve. Through the commission, how do you balance community goals and city goals? That's a good question. It's an interesting position to be in as the Los Angeles City County Indian Commission. You know, our responsibility, at least in my view, is first to our community. And so we're um, looking to engage the community, listen to their concerns, listen to their agendas, and then um, pivot to figure out how we can champion that agenda within the city and the county of Los Angeles. And so uh, to this point, at least in my tenure with the commission, we haven't had a situation where the city or the county is trying to drive an agenda for Native peoples that is counter to what the community wants. Um, That's not to say that that won't happen, but we haven't experienced that. Um, I think more of the problem is that Native peoples are invisible to the city and the county. So the city and county has no agenda (laughs) on Native people, you know, so it's more that we're trying to raise awareness, raise visibility, you know, put forward policy, um, make sure that we're included around, um, you know, whatever uh, resource allocation might exist for various programs. It's more that we're trying to be included than uh, we're trying to change an agenda that's going the wrong way um, within city and county government. Um, I will say that with the um, election of Mitchell Farrell, the first ever Los Angeles City Council member, member of the Wyandotte Nation, um, we have been able to advance, uh, I believe, in our community in a way that wouldn't have been possible if we did not have um, an Indigenous elected leader in office. Um, He has been championing our efforts. Um, We work very closely with his office. Um, You know, we also have champions in the County Board of Supervisors that we're very grateful for. And so it does feel like there is, in this moment, political will to support our issues. Um, And we're very excited about the prospect of that for all of the reasons that I've shared before. Next year on Indigenous Peoples Day in Los Angeles, do you have a vision for what that day will look like or feel like? How could you imagine it in looking ahead? That's an interesting question. So for Indigenous Peoples Day, I would imagine that it's not a singular event, but that beyond the one day, beyond the symbolism of the day, I really feel that we need to get into the school systems. I believe as California residents, everybody that now calls California home has a responsibility to the original peoples of California to know their history, uh, to know how 
California above any other state really has a responsibility and to address the genocide that happened here. Um, California has a very, very bloody history. I mean, the state sponsored bounties on native peoples. Um, and that wasn't that long ago. And I, I feel that it's the responsibility of every person who now lives here to know that history um, and to also recognize the contributions um, that California Native peoples have had to the state historically and in a contemporary way. Um, and it's not okay for people to just put, a, put, put Native people out of their consciousness that, um, you know, that the story, uh, that the story from the past, the story of today uh, is continued to be told and there's more consciousness around it. So while we can have these beautiful events, which I also embrace, I feel like we need to do more to truly honor Indigenous Peoples Day in L.A. I want to just go back to the beginning of our conversation and the day of November 10th in Grant Park. You described that day of the takedown as really meaningful to see the collective efforts toward the removal of the Columbus statue. How can energies from that day be put forth or channeled to not just stop there? Well, I want to say that um, our struggle is not over on this issue. So the removal of the statue, I would say that we're midway through this process. The L.A. City County Native American Indian Commission is advocating that the statue is deaccessioned from the county arts collection. So based on the civic arts procedures, um, the county can deaccession a piece uh, for 10 reasons, one of which if the artwork has received consistent adverse public reaction for a period of five or more consecutive years. And we believe that if there was ever a time to enact their own policy around consistent adverse reaction, it would be about this Columbus statue, which I shared. There's been oral history and testimony and photographs and a lot of documentation that this has been uh, you know, uh, protested for at least since the 90s um, that we have record for. And um, so this is an interesting point because we just don't want to store the statue. We want to kick it out of the county arts collection. And what I've understood from the arts world is that deaccessioning could be a dirty word. A lot of museums, as I understand, deaccession a piece so that they can sell it and then purchase and diversify their collection, which I have come to understand is looked down upon in the arts world. But we are wanting to deaccession for a different reason. Um, and the deaccessioning question and conversation is a controversial one. And so we know that we're not done with this, but that we're wanting to harness all of that community and political will to actually you know, set a precedent around deaccessioning the piece. Now, it calls into question a whole host of issues. You know, are we going to deaccession and sell the artwork? Uh, you know, are we going to deaccession and donate it to an institution that is seeking to educate the public about why the, mon the monument was removed? Um, you know, if we sell or donate, do we have any control of how the statue will be displayed or stored or what have you? 
And so there are a host of questions um, about deaccessioning. And as we understand, you know, uh, whatever action we take is going to set a precedent. Um, I believe that this Columbus statue that we've removed is only the second statue. I believe the first was in San Jose, California. And our hope is that Um, I would say on two levels, one on a national level that other jurisdictions and other communities uh, see what's been happening here and that they're inspired and there's the political will to have the dialogue, to have the public education, and ultimately to remove figures that in a shorthand way we think of as hate speech against Indigenous peoples. Um, So that's one hope that we have. Um, The second is that, you know, the removal of the Columbus statue in L.A. is only one step in a much broader agenda to indigenize public spaces, to lift up the first peoples of Los Angeles, to tell the true narrative of this land that we now call um, L.A., this land that we now call California. So, you know, given the fact that L.A. is largest, has the largest concentration of indigenous peoples, in the country, you wouldn't know that if you looked at our public arts. Um, You wouldn't know that if you looked at our street names. And so we have a much broader agenda um, around, you know, accurate history telling around public arts. Um, And so the statue is uh, one piece in in that much broader agenda. If you had the ability to shape the future for the statue, especially around the ways that you've been discussing, whether it's around further advocating for indigenous people's rights or as an education or as an educational tool, if you had that control, what would the future of the statue be? Originally, I thought that the statue should be used as an educational tool. Um, you know, my uh, dream was to place the statue within a museum that had a framework of social justice. And that the statue would be one piece of a larger exhibit that was about indigenous movement building and resistance and reclaiming a narrative. And um, I thought that would be the best case scenario. Um, But then I started to, because I I am not an expert in arts or museum world, I started to talk to Native artists and other activists and museum studies professors And what I heard, at least from some of them, was that they thought that was a horrible idea. (laughs) And they thought it was a horrible idea because they say that the statue of Columbus is inherently a flawed art piece. And so if we're going to be talking about Indigenous movement and, you know, the move from Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day, or even the statue removal that we should be doing that from the lens of a Native uh, artist, of uh, Native artworks, of uh, Native and Indigenous um, forms of expression. And so I really, I resonated with that and I understood it. And I honestly think that this is a a challenge that not only, you know, we're going to face with Columbus statues, but I think it's a challenge that's being faced with Confederate monuments. We know that the majority of Confederate monuments that have been removed are placed in storage. And the fact is that nobody wants to receive them. Uh, The Columbus statue at one time was offered to the Italian American Museum here located in central Los Angeles. And they said, absolutely not. They do not want the statue. 
Um, so, you know, I think it is a real challenge to understand, you know, if we were going to take down all of the racist monuments across the country, you know, where would they all go other than storage? Um, and I don't think it's a reason for us not to remove them. I think that we need to have a larger national dialogue about what happens to these pieces. Um, and I, it's, it's a question that is, has not been solved or, you know, answered for, I don't think. I mean, the only other jurisdiction I understand that has deaccessioned, um, you know, for adverse public reaction was Baltimore. And they deaccessioned uh, their Confederate monuments. And as I understand it, they're still in storage. So something that, you know, we have seen as a short-term solution might end up being a long-term solution. Um, but it's really one of those things we're still trying to figure out. You've cited a decades-long movement and in recent years have, with collaborators and colleagues, shaped a really remarkable coalition. For organizers and activists and artists in other cities, what are insights that you've gained through that process that might be helpful for others as they pursue monumental work in their own contexts in cities and towns? Well, there are a couple of important things. One, as you shared, is the coalition building. You know, the fact that we need relationships across communities. As I shared, Indigenous peoples are not a monolithic community. We're very diverse um, in tribes. Uh, we're very diverse in geography. Uh, we're diverse in our political views. Um but, you know, I, I really believe that relationship building across those differences um, to say that we might disagree in some areas, but here's what we can agree on um, is really critical because we need everybody's voice. We need everybody to come out. Um, we really need unification in the ways that are possible in our communities. Um, and that, that also exists with um, our non-Native allies so, you know, we, in our struggle for Indigenous Peoples Day, you know, we had allies um, in communities that believed in social justice. So, you know, we really say that this was not only for Native peoples, but it, this move was for all peoples that believe in accurate history and dignity and justice. Um, and so we had allies in the African-American community, the Chicano-Latino community, the Asian community, we had allies in the Italian-American community. There's actually an Italian-American association against Columbus Day that would stand up there with us and say how this is a blight on their history. They do not want to be associated with him, and this is nothing that they support. Um, and so all of those uh, voices and testimony were very important because we wanted to make sure that this wasn't seen as simply an indigenous agenda. This was a broader agenda for all Angelinos. The second thing is I think, you know, we got very good counsel from previous jurisdictions about how to form the argument. And so, you know, I'll say that I just give a lot of thanks to Matt Remley, who's um, a Native organizer based out of Seattle, who, you know, talked with us um, about his work. Um, we talked to Minneapolis about their work. And one of the things that Matt shared was um, he said it's very important that you all use the writings of Columbus and his crew as evidence, as factual evidence of their mind frame, as well as um, evidence of how the indigenous peoples were receiving them. And so, you know, they said the 
the opposition's going to come out really strong. And I think we, they found the most effective tool was actually utilizing their own writing, which is irrefutable. Um, and, you know, related to that, I think shaping the argument um, and getting really clear about why. Why are you against this? Why now? And why is this important to the local jurisdictions basically walking their own talk? So we, you know, would dig up their own mission statements around diversity, around human rights. We called in the state proclamations. We basically said this is in accordance with your own worldview and policies. So if you want to be in alignment with what you believe in, then you need to do this. And then the other thing, you know, related to that is making sure that you have a community behind you, you know, that if there is going to be a hearing, if you put a call out, that people actually really do care about this in the community and are willing to take time off of work or to, you know, come to a meeting in a moment's notice that you actually need folks that are willing to show up with you. So it's not a singular exercise, but it really needs to be a community-wide effort. Chrissy Castro, thank you so much for your time and for sharing a view into this process that's still ongoing in Los Angeles. Thank you so much. Chrissy Castro is the vice chair of the Los Angeles City and County Native American Indian Commission and co-led the change to replace Columbus Day with Indigenous Peoples Day in the city and county of Los Angeles. The Monument Lab podcast is going to take a break for the holidays, but we'll be back early next year with new episodes, live events, and more. Until then, check out monumentlab.com for new writing, new projects. And if you're a fan of the podcast, leave a review or share it with a friend. We'll be back in 2019. The Monument Lab podcast is supported by the Serdna Foundation. This podcast is written and produced by Paul Farber and Justin Geller. Designer and associate producer is William Roy Hodgson. Sound engineer, Justin Geller. Editorial coordinator, Steph Garcia. All music on the podcast is original by Mokita. I'm your host, Paul Farber. For more, visit us at monumentlab.com or find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook.